Let's turn in the Word of God to Philippians chapter 3 once again. Philippians chapter 3. With this uh, nice canopy here, I've often wished this week that I'd been preaching on Jonah under the gourd. But uh, I am grateful for the shade, so thank you, brethren. Philippians 3. We're going to read beginning at verse 13. Philippians 3 and verse 13. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us as many as are mature have this mind, and if in anything you think otherwise... God will even reveal this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we've already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us be of the same mind. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, beloved. What kind of a salvation is it that you want? There are, of course, people that are confronted with the gospel and they decide, well, hell doesn't sound like such a very nice place. All that talk about outer darkness, I don't like that very much. And that thought of fire and a place where people are in such pain and such revulsion that they gnash their teeth. Doesn't sound like fun to me. I'd like fire insurance, please, they say. I'd like to know that I'm never going to go to hell. Others say, well, I'd like to go to heaven. And you say, well, what is heaven to you? If you ask, for instance, a Muslim, what is paradise like? They might tell you some sex of them at least, would tell you, well, heaven is where you get to have swimming pools full of wine, you know? Oh, I see. You're not allowed to drink here, but in heaven, you get to do what you don't do here. I understand. Yes, yes. And you get so many virgins and, and you get all the sensual pleasures that you could desire. Sounds like a paradise made to order for a human being, a fallen human being, doesn't it? But I want to tell you that what makes heaven heaven according to the Bible, and what makes hell hell for that matter, is the presence or absence of the Lord Jesus Christ and the enjoyment of his presence. Because hell is dark because God is light. So if you're not going to enjoy the light of God, God's going to put you into darkness. God is good. So apart from a relationship with God, you're not going to have well-being. 
And what's more, salvation isn't just for the world to come. Thanks be to God, it is that. It is an eternal salvation, which our brother reminded us the other day is everlasting. But he also reminded us that eternal is a caliber of life. It is speaking to the quality of life. It is the kind of life that comes from knowing God and walking with him. Now, when it came to Paul, he was not a complacent person. I think one of the great enemies of true faith in God today in our country is apathy. In fact, in other countries as well, at least in the West, as I go through the predominantly the rich industrialized West, the great enemy seems to be apathy, that people are very casual about their faith, that there isn't much warmth or zeal. Well, Paul happily, like me, was a sports fan. He was one who repeatedly used sports metaphors in the scripture. You can find them in 1 Corinthians 9 and 2 Timothy 4 and other places. But exactly here, he uses a sports metaphor. He says, I don't count myself to have apprehended. I don't think I've gotten everything that God has for me yet. God saved me. He laid hold of my life for a purpose. And I want to have everything that God has for me. I want to go on and get that. But this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind. Now you remember at the beginning of the chapter, he lays out everything that he could be proud of. All the stuff, religiously speaking, that people would think he was good at. And Paul strikes that out. He takes the the divine sharpie, if you will, and he strikes out his righteousness and says, no, 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 I'm forgetting all about that stuff. Moreover, he forgets about his past life, B.C., before Christ, before the Lord Jesus saved him. And even for good things in his life, Paul's saying here, I'm not going to rest on my laurels, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. Now, one of my favorite films is the film from the early 1980s, Chariots of Fire. It, of course, is based on a true story, that of Eric Little, or some say Liddell. Not really sure, not up on my Scottish pronunciation on that one. Sorry about that. But the story is, of course, of two main runners. Eric Little, who was a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, And H.M. Abrams, who was a Jewish man, but not particularly religious. H.M. Abrams' religion, according to the movie at least, was personal excellence and being the best on the track that he could be, being the fastest man. And they have a great soliloquy that he gives in that film where he's on the massage table before his big race at the 1924 Olympics. And he's saying, I have just a few seconds to prove my existence and to establish that for which I'm here. And in the end, he wins his medal and he's empty. Of course, conversely, Eric Little, the believer, he takes a stand based on his convictions that he won't run on a Sunday. He wants to honor the Lord. And the pressure of his nation is upon him and the eyes of the world are upon him. But he says, no, the Lord Jesus is more important. So he runs an event that's not his event. And of course, it's a matter of history that he came and won the gold. And I think at the time set a record, which no longer stands, of course. But he was showing the caliber of his running at that time. There's another scene in that movie where uh, 
I think his name's Ian Holm, one of the great character actors of this generation, playing Sam Musabini, H.M. Abrams' professional trainer. He's telling him how he can win the gold at the Olympics. And he's showing him the old-style lantern slides. And he's saying, now, here's Jackson Schultz, and here's this other guy, these great American runners. You know, I'm sure people in the theaters probably booed at that point or something, you know. They were, the one guy was from California, I think, even. So, you know, they, they were really the, the blonde, strapping, athletic-looking type of people that would dominate at a volleyball tournament, you know. And he says here, you see this slide? Here are they at the Olympics in 1920. And this man conceded the gold to the other man because when he got to the finish, he looked back to see where the other guy was. And as he looked back, well, that cost him a few extra steps. And you see him training H.M. Abrams through the, through the movie, teaching him how when he gets to the finish line, he actually has a drill where he's going to put his chest out and put his head out. And if you watch the great sprinters, even to this day, Usain Bolt, for example, well, he's so fast, it, it hardly matters. But still, when those sprinters get down to the finish line, every fiber and sinew of their being is stretched forward. Now, the distance, guys, it's a little bit different with them. There's a famous photo of Steve Prefontaine, and he's so far ahead of the pack, he's coming across the finish line looking over his shoulder. But Paul's thinking of the sprinter here. And he says, like that sprinter, I'm not looking back. I'm not resting on my laurels. I'm not thinking about everything I did in the past, whether it was before I knew Christ or even up to this point in the Christian life. I'm going forward. I'm pressing on toward the mark of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Everything within me is stretching forward to get that prize that Christ has for me, which in the end the scriptures tell us is Christ-likeness, becoming conformed to his image in glory, according to Romans 8. And 1 John 3 would confirm that. And so he says, everything about me is forward-looking. It's adelante. I'm going forward. I'm not looking back. I'm stretching forth with every fiber and sinew of my being. Now, does that sound like he rolls into meeting five minutes late? I'm not speaking about anybody here. Here, there are mitigating circumstances. While Rex was speaking, I saw a coyote back there. A coyote might have come across your path, you know? (laughs) Yesterday, I was on the way to the meeting, and my little girl was on my shoulders, and she inadvertently kicked me in the eye, and I lost my contact lens. Thank God we found it. But, you know, things happen. We understand. So I'm not putting the blame on anybody here. But I know people that are just so utterly casual about the things of God. They just kind of roll in and, yeah, here again. Hope the preacher's not too boring, you know. Hope he doesn't, like, get on my nerves or something, you know. I I did my time. I'm here Sunday morning, you know. Now I'm good for the week. Yeah, Jesus is just all right with me. That's not what we need, brothers and sisters. We need to be passionate for the Lord, We need to come together with the knowledge that the Lord, as some people have prayed even this week, and I've appreciated it, that the Lord is in the midst. That where two or three are gathered together in his name, there he is in the midst. He's right in the center of things. One of our hymns says that he's the center of two eternities. Why then is he not the center of our lives? We ought to think about him every day. 
We ought to think about him multiple times a day. It ought to be our joy to open up this word and hear him speak to us and our joy to pour out our hearts to him. And all part of that striving toward being the kind of person, the kind of brother, the kind of sister that he saved us to be. Because when he saved us, it wasn't just to deliver us from a lost eternity in hell. Thankfully, that's part of it. He didn't just save us to an eternity in heaven. That's great. But one of my lost friends in high school put it to me many years ago. He said, why would I want to go to heaven and sit on a cloud and play a harp? It sounds boring to me. And if that's your idea of heaven, of course it is boring. I love classical music, but the harp's not my favorite instrument. I'm a cello man. Give me the string section anytime. And then after that, the brass. And I think I put the harp somewhere down past the timpani. You know, it's definitely after the percussion section. I'm very Wagnerian. I like the powerful music. Maybe somebody could whistle uh, Ride of the Valkyries as I'm ending or something. I don't know. But anyway, if that's your idea of heaven, of course it's boring. But you know what heaven is about? You know why it's worth having? It's not the streets of gold. It's not the names on the gates of pearl even. It's not the magnificent city that we can't even wrap our minds around when we read about it in Revelation 21 and 22. It's the Lord Jesus being there. It's knowing him. It's seeing him face to face. It's being able to spend time with him uninterrupted as we never have before. Not falling asleep as we're so prone to do as our brother reminded us. But being able to love him I apologize, I'll quote it again for the second time this week, but McShane hits it right on the head when he says, then I'll see thee as thou art, love thee with unsinning heart. Not till then, Lord, will I know, Lord, to thee, how much I owe. What a wonderful day that's going to be to step into the presence of the Lord. And Paul wasn't apathetic about it. He says, I want to get everything God has for me. I want to press on toward the mark toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. But then he speaks about them and their maturity in verse 15. And he says, as many as are mature, let us have this mind. So we need to be keeping our mind on Christ and on focusing on him and going forward to him. And if you haven't seen that yet as a believer, he says, God will reveal that to you. In other words, sometimes it takes a a time of growth for our hearts to be weaned off of this world, which is paltry by comparison with what God is offering us in Christ Jesus. And if you haven't seen all this yet, if you haven't grasped the importance of it, God will teach you more. I love it how realistic the scriptures are. Paul doesn't say, I expect you all to be as mature in the faith as I am. He recognizes he's writing to people of all different levels and we have to grow. You know, when I first got saved or first started taking part in the Lord's things after I was saved, in my early teens and such, I used to think, oh man, these older brothers, these older sisters, they know God so much better than I do. They know the word of God so much better than I do. They're so far ahead of me in the things of God. And it was right. It was all true. But you know what? There's no shame in that. You've got to start somewhere. The thing is, you've got to grow. The thing is, you've got to keep going on. The thing is, you have to press on. You don't say, well, they're so far ahead of me, I'll never catch up. Why bother? No, the idea is, 
I'm going to train because once upon a time they were like me. They were a babe in Christ. They needed to grow. They needed to get into the word. They needed to be taught of the Lord in all their circumstances, in all their trials, in the things good and bad. They needed Christ to mold them and shape them by his Holy Spirit. None of us comes out of the box ready-made. It's not like God says, okay, instant Christian, just add holy water or something. It's a process. It's an organic living growth, spiritually speaking. And we have to, therefore, be gracious one to another because we not all have achieved the same level. And so those who are taught in the Word are to teach others. And those who uh, are older in the faith are to bring along those who are younger. We heard about that fat principle. And I don't want to talk about fat too much because uh, it hits close to home. But anyway, the kind of fat Brother Rex was talking about was perfectly appropriate from 2 Timothy 2.2, I believe. So that's what we want to do to pass on the faith. But he says this in verse 17, Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. So unashamedly, and you get this several times in the New Testament, Paul says, go ahead and watch how we live. And you'll see what a mature Christian ought to be, what a mature Christian is like. You know, Proverbs says that the hoary head is a crown of righteousness, uh, sorry, is a crown of glory if it be found in the way of righteousness. A hoary head, of course, is a white head. Now, without looking up at this point, uh, lest I make anyone feel uncomfortable, there are a few hoary heads among us. I'm thankful for that. I love to be with older sisters and brothers because I look at their life and I see Christianity lived out. You know what one of the saddest things to see is? A foolish old man or a foolish old woman. Somebody that doesn't take spiritual things seriously. Someone who when they were younger or when they were middle-aged should have been cultivating their walk with the Lord, should have been like Paul, striving to get ahead. And they didn't do that. They spent more time on business. They spent more time on their, fa on their family, not in a good way, just on frivolous things with their family. They spent more times on hobbies, perhaps. None of these things bad in and of themselves. But they didn't spend the time with Christ. That's the thing. And now they're older. And when they ought to be wise and they ought to be helpful and they ought to be examples, they're not. That's a sad, tragic thing. I know that Mr. Tiernus Wilson used to pray, Lord, keep me from becoming a wicked old man. I'm happy to say the Lord answered that prayer. I knew him right to the end of his life. He was a godly old man. You know how he got to be a godly old man? He started out being a godly young man. Saved at 16, on the mission field by 21. How you doing, young people? If the Lord doesn't come, are you going to be a godly middle-aged person? Are you going to be a godly older person? How are you doing, middle-aged folks? I'm with you. I'm in that boat. Are you going to be a godly older person? What you're doing right now, the time you're spending with the Lord or neglecting, that's going to determine what you are. Brother Rex reminded us the danger of neglecting the Word of God. None of us can afford to do that. We've got to continue going on with the Lord, walking with the Lord. Because he says, for many walk, verse 18, of whom I've told you often and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ. So not only are there positive examples, you can look to Paul, you can look to the great Christians of history, you can look to godly older ones in your local fellowship, doubtless, but there are bad examples too. 
There are people out there preaching false doctrine, preaching false gospels, and they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, he doesn't just say enemies of Christ, nor enemies of the gospel of Christ. He says enemies of the cross of Christ. And when the New Testament speaks about the cross, it is emphasizing for us the great dishonor that came to Christ in his death, that the Lord Jesus became accursed by hanging on that tree, that the cross is something that the world vilifies and disesteems and sets aside as naught. So when he speaks about the cross of Christ, he's reminding us that when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ and receive him as our Savior, we are embracing reproach in this world. We are taking up something and identifying with something that the world utterly rejects, that the world thinks totally counter to. The world doesn't say, put yourself lower. The world doesn't say, give yourself up as a sacrifice. I mean, think of pop culture. What movie is it or book is it where the protagonist dies in the end and doesn't kill a whole bunch of other people? I mean, it's okay to die in the end of the book as long as you're dying so you can wipe out 100,000 of the aliens, you know, and keep them from invading Los Angeles or wherever it is. But what the Lord Jesus did was totally counter to what this world says. He made himself of no reputation, we read. He offered himself as a sacrifice and he willingly bore that shame. Shame from men, but also being made sin for us, according to 2 Corinthians 5.21. So that cross tells us, it tells us that we are so bad that the Lord Jesus had to go to the very lowest place to save us. And the cross also tells us that there's nothing we can add to the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, those are exactly the things that false religions will deny. They'll tell you, yes, you can do something to be saved. You can do something to add to the work of Christ. You can do something to get there. You don't have to think of yourself as a bad person. I mean, don't people love that message? God is within every one of us. We all have a little divine spark. I'd believe it if they said the devil's in every one of us, the way we behave. But God in every one of us, I'm sorry. That's a very small God. That's a caricature of a deity, isn't it? It's a a bad joke of a God. No, no. He says, these people are enemies of the cross of Christ. And Paul didn't take it lightly. He says, I tell you even weeping. Now, why was Paul weeping? Let me tell you, he was a tough guy. He was a Marine Semper Fi kind of guy, you know, Navy SEAL down at Coronado, uh, enduring Hell Week sort of person. He would take tough things and experience hardships and do it as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. But this brought tears to his eyes when he thought about people following false teaching. When he thought about people embracing false gospels, that made him cry. He wept for the blindness of the false teachers and he wept for the people that would follow their deception because he knew it destroyed lives. There was nothing uh, haphazard or soft about Paul here. He had a very good reason for weeping. But he shows the end of these people, verse 19, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly. Now, again, I'm hitting close to home, but some people here say, well, the folk he's talking about are licentious people. 
people that want to party now and want to indulge their flesh and, and take on the sensual pleasures. That's why he talks about the, whose God is their belly. That may be so. That could be who he's talking about here. But you know, there are other ways of making your belly your God. It could be by abstaining from food. That's what Colossians chapter 2 tells us, that people are teaching these false doctrines that say, touch not, taste not, handle not. And they're thinking by the food they eat or don't eat, that somehow that commends them to God. Again, he might have in mind these Judaizers that he's thinking about at the beginning of the chapter. In like manner, their God is their belly, whose glory is in their shame, who set their mind on earthly things. That's not the way the Christians to be. That's what marks those who follow the false gospel. They're living for the here and now. But the Christian, as the last two verses remind us, is waiting for the Son of God. They're living for the kingdom to come. They're living for the time when the Lord Jesus will be ruling and reigning over the earth and over heaven and over the new heavens and the new earth eventually. Now, in light of this, he says, verse chapter 4, verse 1, he says, Therefore, my beloved and longed-for brethren. Isn't that a lovely way to describe one's fellow Christians? You are beloved. I love you. What a tremendous thing. I used to hear Bill McDonald say that a lot when he'd speak. He'd say, beloved, and then he'd go and make an exhortation or make a point. You are our beloved brethren, he says. We love you. And he says, longed for. We don't just love you from a distance. You know, some Christians, you think, yeah, the farther away I am from them, the nicer they seem, you know. No, no, he says, longed for. I long to be with you and fellowship with you, and I long to see Christ formed in you. I long to see you getting on in the things of God. My joy and crown. Now, he uses a similar manner of description in 1 Thessalonians 2 when he talks about the believers in Thessalonica. He looks at those believers and he says, you are my joy and my crown. And the same thing here, because he's looking forward to the judgment seat of Christ. And when Paul gets to glory, what is he going to have to show for his life? He's going to say, look, Lord, you used me as your instrument and you brought these people to glory. These people from Thessalonica and Corinth and Ephesus and wherever else, these folk are here because you used me and I obeyed you. And by your grace, you're going to reward me with a crown. Tremendous, isn't it? We wouldn't take our brothers and sisters so lightly if we looked at them as our investment portfolio for heaven. I mean, if you had your life savings tied up in Apple Corp, would you care about whether the next iPhone's going to succeed or fail? You'd probably be reading all the tech blogs and want to know what it's going to be like and what size is the screen and is Siri going to have a better accent or something. I don't know what you'd think about. But you'd be interested, wouldn't you? I mean, every time Steve Jobs used to sneeze, some people, you know, their heart would go flutter. If your life savings was tied up in that, you'd care about what was happening. Well, let me tell you, in part, your reward in heaven is tied up with the progress of your brothers and sisters in Christ. We can't afford to take each other for granted. We can't afford to take each other lightly. We have to invest in each other's lives. And we'll each do that differently. Because God uses us in the place where we are with the personalities we have and the different spiritual gifts that he's given to us. 
God will use us in different people's lives. But all that we might get to heaven and say, you know what? The Lord used me to bring her to faith or him to faith, or the Lord used me to encourage them in their walk with the Lord, or the Lord used me to help meet their physical needs. I used that unrighteous mammon so I could enter into heaven and get the true riches committed to my trust. He said, you're my beloved and longed for brethren, my joy and my crown. So stand fast in the Lord. And he repeats, beloved, stand. Brother Rex used that very phrase today to stand because there's going to be an onslaught. There's going to be an attack. We're in a fight, but we've got to stand. We don't retreat. We have to stand. We have to hold on to the truth. Now, I love how he next segues into a problem that was in the assembly. Some people think this is the entire point of the letter of Philippians being written that there were these two sisters, Yodius and Syntyche, who were at odds. They were having some sort of disagreement. So he says, verse 2, I implore Yodia and I implore Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Are you ready for it? That is the correction in the letter of the Philippians. And look how he began before he gives that correction He talks about the way the Lord uses his life in chapter 1. He talks about the mind of Christ that the whole assembly ought to have in putting others first in chapter 2. He talks about in chapter 3 about rejecting false teaching, which puts the emphasis on us and man and what man can do and talk about what Christ does in us and through us and what we're reaching forward to get. And then he thinks about how great the saints are in God's estimation and in his estimation, they are beloved and long for. They are his joy and crown. And now I'm going to tell you that there's a problem. You've got to get straightened out here. You sisters, you've got to be of the same mind in the Lord. But then look what he says next. I urge you also, verse 3, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, I tell you something, if a man shows to me that he loves me in the Lord, if he shows to me that he really cares for my spiritual progress and he has my heavenly well-being in view, he's got his eye on the judgment seat and he wants to see me standing there approved and him standing there with me getting his reward for me getting to that end point that the Lord wants us to have. If I know a man loves me and cares for me, I'll take any kind of rebuke from him. It's the guy who doesn't ever come alongside and say, how you doing, brother? It's the one who never says to me, I'm praying for you. It's the one who never gives me anything. It's the one who never stops by to check on me or gives me a phone call or sends me a note or emails me or texts me or SMS messages me or whatever, uses smoke signals or semaphore for that matter. That person, if they come to me and tell me I've got a problem, I pray, Lord, give me humility because it's probably a legitimate complaint. I've got lots of problems. And Lord, help me to take the best out of that and to correct myself. But you know what's much better? When you have someone who's learned from the Lord Jesus how to wash feet. We've heard about that extensively. To wash feet, you can't do it from a distance. I can't wash Doug's feet. He's way over on the other end of this amphitheater from me. I have to get close to him. And also I have to get down and get right in the center of things and wash his feet that way. 
That's how Paul operated. He wasn't just waiting for one of the Christians to step out of line and fall and say, ah, I got you. I knew you were going to mess up and I caught you red-handed. We're going to toss your bottom out of the assembly so fast you can't even say sarsaparilla. (laughs) We'll kick you to the curb like the garbage we don't want here. No, that was never Paul's approach. In fact, even when it came with putting away grievous sin, he always had his mind on the soul of a person being saved. 1 Corinthians 5 makes that clear. And he had in mind, as 2 Corinthians teaches us in chapter 2, the restoration of the fallen one. Now, in order to see that kind of New Testament discipline happen, you've got to get involved in the lives of your brothers and sisters. You've got to be close. And that feet washing ought to be happening continually. We ought to be doing it one for another because guess what? We all need it. Galatians 6.1 tells us, If a brother be overtaken in a fault, ye who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness and fear, considering yourself, lest you also are tempted. Saying like Brother Rex reminded us, it could be me. And saying, I'm no better than you, brother, but God helping me, I want to help you get back up again and walk with the Lord again where you should be. I love that approach. He points back to Yodius and and Syntyche, and he says, you know about these sisters. They are my sisters in the Lord, and they're fellow workers in the gospel. I'm not forgetting how the Lord's used them in the past. Okay, so they've got a problem right now. They need to deal with that. But let me tell you, they're my fellow workers with Clement also. They were the ones who were helping in the gospel. And remember, their names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Now, that's the ultimate seal of value, isn't it? If the Lamb of God says, I've purchased these people with my blood and their names are written in my book, that's the main book. When Revelation 20 tells us about the great white throne judgment, that's where you want your name to be written in that book of life. Because if your name's written in that book of life, your judgment is passed. It fell on the Lord Jesus Christ. You've already passed from death unto life, John 5, 24 tells us. But the beautiful thing here is, he says, you think of them as Christ thinks of them. You think of them as they are in the Lord. And as you think of them, you won't be thinking, oh, these are sisters that got to get their act together and they're really a pain in the neck. Or, oh, sisters, why do you got to bring the whole assembly down? Or, oh, how could you fall into this, you wretched individuals? He's saying, no, you remember who they are in the Lord. And that'll keep your priority straight for dealing with them. Yes, urge them to be of the same mind in the Lord. And it shows us how important the testimony of the sisters is. That though they are commanded to be silent in the meetings of the church in 1 Corinthians 14, and though God does not give to them the teaching role as taught in 1 Timothy chapter 2, their testimony and their work for the Lord has an effect on the entire assembly that's as important as anything else God does in the assembly. So it behooves the sisters as well as the brothers to keep short accounts with the Lord and with one another and not to let a spirit of bitterness and unforgiveness dwell up, but to be washing one another's feet and to be of one mind in the Lord. May God help us to do so for his glory. Father, we're thankful for this practical teaching and we pray that we'd all be zealous in reaching forward to what thou hast for us, that we'd forget what's behind and we'd reach on toward what's ahead. And Father, help us in our relationships one with another. We're on vacation. We're in a beautiful place. In many ways, we feel 
de-stressed. It's easy relatively to get along together in a place like this. But it's in the everyday world, in our everyday lives, where we sometimes rub against each other the wrong way. And we sometimes sin against each other. So Father, give us a forgiving spirit one toward another. And give us a repentant spirit when we sin. And help us to minister to one another, to build one another up in the most holy faith. Again, we can only do this through thy power. And so we ask thee for thy Holy Spirit's wisdom and enablement. And we ask this in the Lord Jesus Christ's holy name. Amen.